We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike, and it is free agency week. We are going to be previewing free agency, although delicately with Mike and I's situation. Every pod this week is going to be about free agency to one extent or another. And we're going to start with our own free agents. We just had Kendrick Nunn opt in to his player option. Russell Westbrook has a player option coming up on June 29th that he's probably going to opt into, we'd figure, but he has not done so yet. There are team options on Austin Reeves, Stanley Johnson, and Wenyan Gabriel. And probably the Lakers' biggest unrestricted free agent from last season is Malik Monk. Jovan Buha, who does wonderful work over at The Athletic, had an interview, an exclusive with Malik that just came out today as we're recording this Monday morning, in which Malik brings up the idea that he would take less money to stay with the Lakers, but that's always something, you know, D, that's, you know, we'll, we'll see. And a lot of things depend on a lot of things. But Malik is someone that we've kind of talked around, but not a ton about. I'm of the mind that he's too small to compete in a high level playoff series and be really good. But he was our best, like plus minus guy from much of the season. He was one of the highlights of last season, one of the few things where he exceeded expectations. So let's talk about Malik a bit. Where do you stand on kind of the idea of bringing him back, what that would look like, kind of where your where your threshold is of I would bring him back at this, but not at that? So I think you're going to hear this discussion a lot from various, you know, however many podcasts you listen to that are team specific. The idea of the playoffs being the prism in which people are examining their own teams moving forward, right? And I always think that that's how you should be forecasting things out if you're a really good team is how will this guy play in a playoff series? And I don't know about either of you guys, but I wasn't looking at things like that in the year that the Bucks won the championship because the Lakers still seemed like they were on the precipice of being a real contender. They were right there with the Suns and then they got hurt and they had a very mm -hmm. specific type of team that looked like if everyone was healthy, that they could still compete. Yes. 
Yes, we weren't wondering, like, can this group of guys win a championship? They had literally just won a championship. That's right. Now, a year removed from that, and with the season that the Lakers just had, and the exchange, Mike, of valuable, to whatever degree you valued them, but valuable role players who played on a championship team, and swapping them them out for Russell Westbrook, and then filling the roster with... A bunch of unknown players within the context of how they might compete in a playoff series outside of like a Dwight and a Carmelo Anthony, but those guys are at the way end of their careers, is how will how would those dudes play in a high-level playoff series? And Monk is a player where I fall on the side of like, I don't think he'd be as effective in a series like the finals that we just saw versus two high-level defenses and then offenses that have the ability to target you. And so before I go any further, I just want to put that idea because, Pete, I think that was something that you were representing a little bit too with your comments. I just want to put that to Mike in general because Mike is the guy who often doesn't like small guards and Malik is exactly that. And I think some of the reasons why Mike you've, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why you haven't liked small guards is for the exact deficiencies that Malik brings to the table, particularly defensively. So I just want to put that to you first and then we'll go from there. So first of all, I really do like Malik Monk uh, as a player. And I think he's got real and true NBA skills that mm-hmm. are not easy to come by natural gifts. He's got great touch from three. He's got great touch from the mid range. He's got floaters. He's got finger rolls. He's got funky little moves where it looks like he's going to go to a finger roll with, with or a floater with his right. And all of a sudden he's finger rolling with his left and he finishes at the rim because he's got a 40 plus inch vertical. So offensively, I really like him as a piece that fits in. And that's the type of player that's going to be in the league to me, though, more as a sixth man and a good sixth man, but as a six man scoring type. And I've I've made these comps before, but, you know, to an extent like Jordan Poole was last year to the whole kind of peak Lou Williams, although he he finishes at the rim better um, than Lou. He's more explosive uh, and and certainly can jump a ton higher. So I, I think that there's the upside there defensively. He'll occasionally battle pretty well. Uh, he can even like block his guy's shot sometimes because he does have really good length. But it is more about the what Darius referred to in that playoff setting that I don't value him less on like on this. I value him maybe less for next year's roster based on what the other personnel is. So if you've if you've already got in, you've already established that you've got a bunch of three and D wing types that can close a game then great. I'd love Monk to be that luxury where I can have him come in and score and, and just be on the court at certain times. Maybe he stays hot. Maybe he even stays in to a couple games. But if I don't know that I have the rest of those spots occupied, that's when I get nervous. And that's when I think, well, if I'm committing all this, this resource to a guy like that, but I don't already have the things that I know I have to have, which is three and D wings, guys that can't be on the floor. That's when that's when I get a little bit more skeptical about the fit of somebody like Malik. Right. And especially with as limited as our resources are to uh, to acquire those types of guys, the idea of giving more than a vet minimum to that type of player. And Malik has obviously earned more than the vet min that he got last season, that it, it's just hard to see the the congruence there. But something you said, Mike, caught my my ear that I want to pose to you, but also Darius is, do you think that he can be a top seven player 
on one of the, your seven guys in a rotation on a contender. Like if, if you have, this is a hypothetical, theoretical, you have those three and D wings. Every, every other slot is full, um, but he needs to be one of your top seven guys, the sixth or seventh guy. You saw him as a, as a quality sixth man going forward. Can he be that on a contending team? Um, in perfect situation. Sure. You think so? Sure. Could he be Jordan Poole? See, that's the thing. That's actually a very good, tangible, solid question. Poole's bigger than he is, right? Yes, yes. Poole is bigger than him. Poole's probably a better shooter, too. Right, and he, so, and like Malik's offensive game is a little more, like he thrives in more chaotic situations. Like Poole can come off of a, a down screen. Not that Malik can't, but Poole is, can do this at a high end level, right? Like these, I feel like basketball gets more organized at these higher levels of basketball where like Malik can really eat if the game is open and loose in yeah. ways that like Poole can still score when the, the well, when basketball is a little more serious. I think that, well, I also think that that's because of Golden State system and yes. all of the stuff that they all run sure. for Steph. And how Poole is able to approximate that, and 100%. where you're optimizing that skill set, right? The thing I'd say about Poole, too, is just from an individual scouting and player evaluation standpoint, and like looking at their individual film and watching them play, is that Poole is a more, we think about force often playing with force as someone who is just like strong and like finishing over the top, but like a Giannis, Giannis plays with force, right? But there's also forcing moves. And I think about this within the context of chess, right? Where it's just like, hey, what's your, what's your most forcing move? Well, okay, well, I'm going to put a check on the king right now. And that's very forceful. Like you have to respond to that. Because yes. if you don't, then it's just like, those are the rules of the game. Right. Did you say chess, Darius? I did say chess. <laughs> Anyways. It's so. Hold on, just shout out my guy. A little Goldfarb, oh, Goldfarb I, reference. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. Is it, so, hope you're doing well, Goldfarb, you bastard. So, Pool is a more forcing player, I think, because he is a much more straight line drive guy. He is not a dance with the ball a lot where Malik, I feel like Malik yeah. is, yeah, uh, is more of a, like, oh, let me get into my bag sort of dude. And Poole definitely does that, but Poole is a lot of like hezzy and then boom, quick right to left or left to right crossover and then I'm downhill, right? And, and so that sort of player within the context of team offense and then like driving kick basketball and forcing help, that is, there is a more, I don't know, man. It's like, it just triggers more things for your offense than some of the things that Malik does. If you were to look at their stats and be like, oh, each guy could easily hit six threes in, in a game or score at the basket, be a three level scorer, be crafty around the rim. Yes. All of that is, is exactly true. But so pool's an interesting comp, but I, but I agree with, with Mike that the system accentuates what pool does whereas the Lakers system um and we'll see what ham's system is but but last season i thought malik had to do more for himself and i don't know if that's going to translate as well so let's go to break here because i really do want to continue this conversation around malik particularly around this idea of resource allocation we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So both of you guys mentioned resources. And it's going to be instructive because I think every free agent conversation we have around the Lakers is going to be based off of resources, right? They have the tax mid level to pay, and then they have veteran minimums, basically. They cannot spend their biannual exception because that triggers the hard cap. Shout out to Eric Pincus. <laughs> and so, Pete, you led with Jovan's piece about, like, willing to take less money. Okay, well, what does less money look like when the Lakers only have one exception to use and the only sort of real exception they could use on Monk that's not the tax level is non-bird, which basically I think would pay Malik 150% of his previous salary. So let's get into the weeds a little bit here with Monk. What is his respective free agent value across the rest of the league? Your speculation. And what is his value to the Lakers in terms of like what they can pay? And is he worth that? Because that's where the decision is going to lie. I'd suspect he's around a full MLE guy or perhaps a little bit less. I think they're like guys like him are very helpful for a lot of teams around the league. And that ability to get through the regular season and, and put up numbers during that time. Like I, that's something that a lot of teams could use. And the MLE is something that be it the taxpayer or the full MLE that unlike salary levels above that, everyone has access to. Uh, now, whether they choose to use it or not, that depends on oftentimes the tax situation and whatnot. But like the number of teams who could offer Malik a full MLE or closer to like, I, I don't know, the, every, I, I keep saying full M MLE, but every time I say it, I'm like, I think it'll be a little bit less than that. But I'm not particularly great at guessing what guys contracts will be. But there is a place in the league for those types of guys. Mike, I just always have that question of like, can you be a top seven, top eight guy on a contender in their rotation? And that's the main question that I always struggle with when I'm thinking about types of guys that I like to have. And a way that I would frame top seven, eight is basically, can you be in a closing lineup against a good team in a playoff game? Now, mm -hmm. it's a bit of a different question, but those are if you're trying to actually win a championship, then you're seven, eight to me. You can have one guy based maybe that can be targeted by the other team and that can be taken off the floor in the wrong matchup. And mm -hmm. Jordan Poole does fit into that conversation. And mm -hmm. I think that the main a main difference between Poole and Monk has just been the systems that they've been in. And if Poole would love to dance with ah. the ball, I'm I'm convinced. If you if the coach was just like, hey, go get us <laughs> a bucket, sure. bro. You think he'd be yeah. like, nah, I'm just gonna go direct to the cup here. Yeah. Or eh, I'm just gonna pull around the screen. So I think a lot of players 
with it with a certain style and swagger like to play that way and that's that's to me the question so i'm kind of right back into that same discussion where if we're talking about pool then yeah well give me gary payton the second right whereas in the regular season if you just like like back in the day when the we all got our stats from the newspaper and it just it was basically just points per game without field goal percentage you know like that's pool's gonna look monk and pool are gonna look better than payton and that kind of thing. I just think the game has evolved so much and teams are so good and aggressive at targeting mismatches and at getting guys off the floor and including, by the way, LeBron, who, who's done that better than almost anybody in NBA history, that that's the thing that I'm thinking about. And it, it just the hard part, the harder part of this is when you have a guy that plays well and exceeds what his contract was, you made a really good move to then just let that guy walk. That is tough, too. That's so it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky situation with Monk. And I don't know if there's the clean solution unless something happens trade wise, right? Where like where the Lakers are able to get some of those other types of players that they need. Yeah, this is where I'm torn on Monk too. If he had shown more defensively, by and so I think we should frame this appropriately too. Monk played better on defense last season over the course of the year than what he started out, right? So yes. at the beginning of the year he found himself on the bench a lot because he wasn't competing on defense at all. As the year went on, he played more and more defense and he found his role expand. And then I would say in the last third of the season, no one played defense. Yeah, it's not something that's specific to a player. You're just kind of playing out the string at that point. Yeah, exactly. And so I would say Monk fell back onto some bad habits. And I'll put this back to you guys. To me, there is a natural inclination of a player. And then there is how a team and a system can sort of weed some of the bad habits out of a player so that they are then more focused on playing winning basketball. There's a lot of players from last year's team where I'd like to see them on a serious basketball team. And last year was not a serious basketball team. Last year's Lakers was Mm -hmm. not. And so using last season as informed speculation to what they might be on a more serious team, there is a leap that you have to make there within your Mm -hmm. mind that I'm not always comfortable making with certain players. Monk, however, is one of those guys where it's like, what has he been his entire career? And that then also informs things, right? And, And so... In a perfect world, to get back to your question, Pete, like top seven or eight, if every other player is an elite defensive player, every other player. Yeah. Which is kind of what Golden State was doing, right? Like they didn't play any other bad defender besides Jordan Poole, not a single one. Yeah, they got Bielitsa a few minutes here and there, but the rest of their real rotation are all guys who can defend. Yeah, like, I mean, who were the... Even Steph, yeah. Yeah, even Steph, right? And so if Steph is the next worst guy, and then after Steph, who is it? Gosh, it's a pretty good defender, right? Porter? Yeah, probably Porter, maybe Looney. Not And like, Looney's a good defender. That's the thing, right? You start getting into legitimately above average at worst defenders. I mean, Clay Clay didn't have, wasn't his typical defensive self for much of the season, but he kind of got there by the end of the finals. For sure. And he was very helpful in those finals defensively, yeah. So now project what the Lakers are going to have on their roster next season and how many impact defenders do the Lakers currently have in their projected rotation. And obviously they don't have, they've got like five guys on their contract, right? But even amongst those five guys, it's LeBron and AD. Russ is a big question mark. 
And then Stanley, okay. He's going to compete defensively, and I think that he can hold his own a lot. Austin, he's going to compete, but he he showed some weaknesses there as well in terms of being a target, especially with his strength. And Gabriel, to me, is like a marginal yeah, rotation he's a player guy. at best. Yeah. Like he's yeah. an end-of-the-bench guy. And so I think you have to think about Monk not as then a priority because these other things are priorities, which then mm-hmm. brings me back to the resources question that I had earlier. And that's where I'm sort of bumping up against things when it comes to Monk. Yeah, it, it ultimately comes down to me of – so those resources are are and the limited resources are number one. And if we were in a situation like Golden State where we had you know a bunch of good defenders under contract, like I, I'd entertain the conversation a little bit more. But ultimately when it comes to a small guard, I feel like to compete at those highest levels of basketball – if you're going to be that small, your awareness has to be through the roof, right? Like you have to be able to anticipate plays defensively and get there. Cause like even a guy who's not a great defender, but they're six, five, six, seven, you're big enough to be in the way and be an obstacle. And so like the things that ultimately hold Malik back, I think from being a higher level playoff player are things that are either out of his control or he would have exhibited by now, like that high level of anticipation and awareness that like you can improve at that and being in a good environment on a serious basketball team like basketball players play more serious defense generally when they're on a serious basketball team and there's and so but even in those circumstances d i just see him as like just the physical attributes the the way that he would get um, targeted is is something that like you have to be so good on offense and he's really good on offense don't get me wrong but to make up for that i i don't think he quite hit that hits that threshold so let's take another break and when we come back we're going to talk about some of the other lakers free agents through a similar lens So we've got those three team options on Austin Reeves, Stanley Johnson, and Wendon Gabriel, all of which I would like to see the Lakers exercise those options. But before the pod, D, you brought up a comment about how like we may rank these guys a tier above because they were the best part of a crappy season last year. Yep. And there's still very much that question of like, can I, Austin or Stanley? And I don't have this expectation from Wendon uh, particularly, but from those two guys that can they crawl up into that top seven, top eight territory? Stanley Johnson was out of the league last year, right? So the the leap from there to being a top seven, top eight guy, that's a long way. Now, I am buying all of the Stanley Johnson stock, at least in this particular circumstance. I think that he's... I think he's found the correct role for his skill set and his talent and actually his ability to operate in the short role territory where someone else, a superstar, a legit star like LeBron is occupying that attention. Stanley Johnson with advantage, I think, has a lot of skills between his floater game, his ball handling ability at his size and his ability to pass. And then defensively, he's got a lot of length. He showed a lot of talent as a ball pressure guy where I, I, I could see it. But the idea that he is that is certainly very optimistic. So I think we're probably all on the same page. Like, of course, you exercise the team options on those guys. But how much we value them, I think, is an interesting question because the biggest asset, quote unquote, that we ha- that we have going into this offseason is Russ's contract, right? Like that, of all the things we've talked about, the, the uh, MLE or the vet minimums, the single thing that can bring back the most talent is that. And so, doesn't Austin get attached to a trade? 
does Stanley get attached to a trade? How, how much do we value them? How much do we value them versus the upcoming first round picks that we possibly have to trade, right? These are all questions that I think are on the table. So take that in whatever direction that, that, that you want. But that's kind of where I, I think the overview of, of them. To me, Austin is the guy that has shown upside is a funny word to use with Austin because just the way that he looks, but in the way that he's going to be judged, right, with the the lack of relative athleticism or pedigree or where the fact that he didn't go drafted. But to me, he's got that kind of upside in a way of he could be a good part of the team for many, many years. It's role player upside, right? He's never going to be the best player on your team, but I see what you mean. Like he's got role player upside. Well, and he can be, he can be kind of a bridge type player for a franchise where he's just, he's so good at fitting in, I think to a lot of different styles of basketball and whatever team you want to build around him. If it's a running team, if it's a half court team, he can adjust his game and adapt. And and I, I just love those kind of players as somebody that you have in a long-term situation that's going to help you in, in multiple ways. Stanley, to me, is, is probably a little bit more specific. And, you know, he's he's a guy that I like to have on the back end of the roster where in a pinch I know I can bring him in. Hey, go defend this big wing. Hey, go go give us some energy. Go, go do this. But he's not somebody that I have to have out there as a part of my regular rotation unless he's able to be a bit more consistent on the offensive end. You know, whether that's he really gets his dribble drive game down or he starts to hit. He's kind of in that margin of where I say, well, shooting doesn't matter. Well, it does to a point where defenders have to be able to go out and defend you. And if he gets to the point where he can make you rotate like P.J. Tucker style, where he's just sitting out there. And if you leave him wide open, he will hit a, a couple as opposed to like Draymond Green style. Right. So that's. That's to me where he has to go to get from being at the end of the roster. But I still want him on the roster. I just don't want him on the roster in the same way that I want Austin, where I would be hesitant to include him uh, in deals because I, I, I might think he's got more value to me than he does to you. And so therefore, no, you know, I'm not I'm not throwing that in. There's not some obvious case where it's this type of asset that you can take and build and grow, whereas I know that I can. Would you value him over the 27 or 29 picks with the proper protection in a uh, trade asset sense? Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> I mean, it is. So it's one that that Rob Palenka is going to need to answer. I guess, the, I guess the first I guess the quick answer is I don't think. I don't think another team is going to value him more than they would that future first. No, no matter what the protection is. So that's what you go based on. So I guess the answer is no. The framing for me isn't I'm not using the same framing on Stanley or Austin as I am on Monk. Oh, why, why is that? Because Stanley and Austin are under contract and they have a fixed cost. We uh, know what they cost. Yeah. Right. Stanley Johnson's going to make a little bit over two million dollars next season. And Austin Reese is going to make like one point seven million. This is a great point. If we had a team option on Malik Monk, I'd be like, that's great. Yep. Pick Come him on up. back. Yep. Pick up the option. <laughs> this is a great point. Yes. Right. And so I don't look at them through the same lens as can you be on the floor to close a playoff game against a good team? Can you be a top seven or eight guy? I need them to be top 11 guys. Because I'm not looking at them as being. Um, And this is why I think that idea of value and how you value them is super important. Like, I would not want to include Austin Reeves in any trade. I just wouldn't. That said, if you're getting back a top 20 player in the NBA, and the difference in getting that player is Austin Reeves 
then what are we talking about? Right? That, sh- that shouldn't be the difference, though, should it? It should. Some of the teams would be like, we're not doing it unless you throw Austin Reeves in. Like, they, they're going to say, we're not doing it unless you throw in one or two first round picks in. That's right, Mike. But it's also just like, okay, well, when you're at the last stages of negotiation and you're haggling, and you're actually haggling, and it's actually just time to make the deal. Like, I'm tired of having this damn conversation. Are we making the deal or, or are we not? And the difference is, well, look, I need one more thing. What do you mean yeah. you need one more thing? We've been talking for two effing weeks here <laughs> to get this done, and you need one more thing? What's your one more thing? And they're like, we want Austin Reeves. And you're like, I'll give you a future second-round pick. And they're like, what are the protections? And they're like, oh, this, that, and the other. Nope, I don't like that. I want Austin Reeves. Well, how about, no, actually, I want Austin Reeves. And suddenly, Austin Reeves might be the stupid sticking point, not that Austin's stupid, I'm not saying saying that, but it might be, like, within the context of that conversation, he might be the sticking point. And that's my only point, is that when I mentioned what I said before we started recording, Pete, that idea of, like, we love these dudes because they exhibited the qualities we wanted in the rest of that godforsaken team that did <laughs> yeah. not that that did not show enough yeah. will to compete or or like defensive integrity or sort of just that idea that this matters to us on a level those guys showed that and that makes us appreciate them right it was refreshing, right? That idea, it was such a contrast between so much of the game that it was like, man, put the young dudes in and like, let's roll with them because they're at least going to compete. It's, you have to have that as a foundation. But now that you have to make more clear-eyed decisions on what a roster mm-hmm. of 1 through 15 is going to look like and where those guys would appropriately slot on a really good, good team, you do have to value them appropriately. Right now, I ultimately think that with two or three more years of good seasoning, by the time he gets to his age 27 season, right, that a player like Austin Reeves can be a real rotation player on a high level basketball team. I think he can be your eighth guy. Right. I do think he can get there, too. Yeah. But is that this year is that's probably not this year. But right. The Lakers made a mistake with Alex Caruso. They let one of those dudes walk for nothing. And on top of that, they invested the resources into him in order to get him to that point. And then they let him walk. And so they like doubled down on their mistake. They baked the whole damn cake and then left it on the windowsill and some dude just came and took it. And not only that, anyways. <laughs> you got some things to say on Caruso, huh? I think yeah. <laughs> I'm like, like I'm just saying, right? Yeah, no. And so on some levels, almost like, Hurt me now with Austin Reeves. Don't hurt me in three years. (laughs) There's a part of me that feels that way, right? But in the big picture, I'd rather keep Reeves. But I don't, what I don't want is for the Lakers to overvalue them in a way. And I want them to see them through the appropriate lens. To me, the appropriate lens is like, yes, on Austin Reeves, maybe on Stanley Johnson, right? Maybe. I'm looking at them as players nine through like 9, 10, 11, right? And not players 6, 7, and 8. Because 6, 7, and 8 makes you prioritize them in a way that I don't think is necessarily appropriate at the stage of team building. After the team is built, they may end up becoming that for you. But that's kind of where I am. I, I agree, but 6, 7, and 8 are not slots that are filled on this particular roster, Correct. right? And, and, and even that will be the case. Like, I would argue that 
aside from the players that we've mentioned, you've got THT and Kendrick Nunn, neither of whom are locked into that top eight on a championship team either. Nunn is the closest. He was the eighth or ninth guy. But by the end of Miami's playoff runs, when he was there, he was out of the rotation. Right by the time that and, and who would and he'd be inserted into particular situations, but he wasn't a he's going to be you know playing two three shifts every night for Miami, and so he's the closest thing to somebody who's proven that they can get there, Mike, and he's still a fringe guy there, and so like I think that for next year, and who knows the roster is probably going to look totally different in a week, and we may be having a different conversation, but I do think that one of the things I've said is that we got to hit several things, and I think a leap out of Two of the three of Austin, Stanley, and THT are necessary to go from where they are in that 9, 10, 11 spots to becoming legit 6, 7, 8 guys. And there's no guarantee for that happening. But if we are going to be successful, I think two out of the three, if we keep a similar roster, is absolutely necessary. So, yeah, that's where I kind of think we stand on that. This is a slightly different direction, but it had me thinking about you know Dwight Howard, Carmelo Anthony, some of the, the veteran types that have been on the roster the last couple of years. And for me, this is a trickier year for some of these same reasons to have guys like that uh, on, on the roster up until the point where, you know, you've really felt like you can get from places three through eight, or we didn't, how many pods, I don't know on that last year that you've got, that you're not, you're not going to need those guys to play more than, and Dwight, I think it's even different from Melo. Like Melo, if Melo would have played 15 minutes a game last year, then I think he could have been pretty effective in certain ways. Um, Dwight, to me, the legs just looked like they, you know, they they were, it was tough for him to find his legs, you know, more than maybe once a week last season. And that this year to me has to be taken so much more into account um, than in previous seasons, just like in the way that we talked about Malik Monk. Well, if that, if he's going to be one of the guys that you're paying, then you have to know that he can be on the floor in these certain situations. So I, I would say that that extends to the roster on a general principle. So to speak to your Mello and Dwight point, Mike, like I think Mello and Dwight are knows moving forward. Like I can't see, they bring too much of that pedigree idea where you're bringing Dwight. So I think this is more true for, for Mello than, than for Dwight. I think they there would likely be an expectation that Mello would have a role that is too big for what a good team would want from a Carmelo Anthony. Um, and so that's that's where I stand. Pete, I was going to throw another name at you, but are you sort of on the same place where it yeah, comes to Mello and Dwight? I'm at an absolutely not place yeah. with both of them we can't sign guys that can't move or run like Melo was uh, aside from monk was the closest guy to like playing to a level where i expected Melo to be like that he had some good nights where he hit his open threes like he was dependable in the ways you'd expect carmelo anthony to be dependable he was also really bad in the areas you'd expect carmelo anthony to be really bad especially on the defensive end and like you can't play a guy at a front court position in particular we're talking about guys who get targeted yeah to me like you can't play front court court guys that get targeted at all if you want to get away with the one guy who plays offense but isn't really good on defense you better be a guard and like 
all the times that they targeted him on, in drop coverages and things like that, we signed a bunch of guys that couldn't move, that couldn't run. Uh, DeAndre Jordan, Dwight Howard, Carmelo Anthony, Trevor Ariza, our whole front court were guys that just couldn't run. And so that like I, I, I just don't think that we can do that again. I'm all for vets. We already have a lot of young guys to where I do think that we need some responsible adults and serious guys. It, this can break down different ways depending on what happens with Russ and kind of the top of the roster. But on in either build and in, in any direction that we go in, our front court guys have to be able to move this year. So I wrote an article about like, are there any veterans that the Lakers should bring back next year? Uh, this went up at Silver Screen and Roll a couple of weeks ago. And this was guys who made who made the minimum and would expect to make the minimum next next year. So I did not talk about Monk at all. What about Kent Bazemore? So we haven't talked about Bazemore at all. One of the reasons why we didn't is because Bazemore found himself out of the rotation entirely, like a third of the way through the season, and basically never played at all after that, except for garbage time. Baze is, what, 32 or 33? So he's not old. He played with vigor and showed spirit when he did play. He was mistake prone in all the ways you would anticipate Kent Bazemore to be mistake prone. But he, Kent Bazemore has a history. I don't know if he was there in Atlanta at the same time that Bud and Darvin Ham were. Mm, I believe he was for at least a year. Interesting connection, yeah. So, I, like, I'm just throwing Bays as a name out there, right? The Lakers are likely to have three or four guys on veteran minimum contracts. They already have a lot of guards under their current roster construction. THT's a guard. Obviously, Russ is a guard. Nunn's a guard. Austin Reeves is a guard. Maybe you don't need another guard. Kent Bazemore's a guard. Um, but I'm just throwing his name out there because we talked a lot about veterans and guys who can't move and all of this other stuff. Well, Kent Bazemore was a veteran on last year's team. He's very likely to be a minimum salary player moving forward if he continues his NBA career. Is Bazemore a hard no in the same way that like Melo and Dwight were hard no's for you, Pete? Or is he under consideration? Is he like, where would you stand with Baze? He's a hard no for different reasons, right? Like I, my old rule for role players is like, don't do stupid stuff, right? And Baze does a lot of stupid stuff on the court that I think that when you're built around those uh when we are a top heavy team in particular, as our roster will be, that you need your a certain degree of reliability in your role players and making the correct play. This is something that you're always really big on is like, do you understand how to like what the next play is supposed to be? And do you and that was one of the reasons he got benched is like he kept missing his low man rotations. And uh, it was it was defensively. Right. And he was in a guy that we expected to have defensive issues. But there's just. Baze is erratic in a way, Mike, that I don't think is helpful to being on a contending team, that he can move and he plays hard. And I actually really thought he kept a great attitude throughout this season. But for those reasons, I very much look toward other places. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I'm with you, Pete. I, I just think that there are going down the list. I think that there are names ahead of that, right, for one of those type of slots. And, you know, there's also sometimes when you just have a season that doesn't go great, it can be change for change sake can be a positive. Yeah. And, and I think that that would apply uh, with last year and not for necessarily for any fault of Bayes or even the team. It just it, it didn't end up being the best mix that we thought it might be when we were thinking, oh, a guy that actually can stay on the floor defensively. So I would probably go in another direction, too. Yeah. So basically, we're hard nose on Bayes and 
Ellington and Wayne. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. Carmelo, Dwight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like a Carmelo, new I would take is of- like the is like the last guy in the roster type. Uh, if if you know where he didn't, but if he still wants to be in the spot where he wants to play every night, I think some teams might want that. I would like him to be out there where you could throw him in once in a while, but I just I think he's a great locker room presence yeah. type. But that might not be where he's at, even though it's going to be his 20th season, which is insane. Remember, same, of course, draft class is LeBron. And he'll be, what, the what do, the 10th or 11th player in NBA history or something mm-hmm. to do that? So mm-hmm. that's pretty remarkable in its own right. But, yes, yeah. sorry, Darius, go ahead. No, no, no. It Because I think that this is an important way and, and probably where we should close out. It's like it shows you that last year's team actually – there were some redeeming qualities. I think we mentioned the guys who would potentially be back, but those sound like the guys who were already under contract. Like, yeah, even Monk. It's like I'd have a hard time finding a a real role for Monk next season if THT and Nunn are both back. And assuming that they have a point guard, whether it's Russell Westbrook or a different player. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's just... Those are the casualties of roster construction. And when you were too top heavy in one season and it was a bad season, I think the change for change sake point that Mike made is informative here. Sometimes you do just need to wipe the stink off, even if some of those players aren't very stinky themselves. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like this is this is the direction that we have to go here. All right. Uh, this was fun. It was good to start with our own guys before we kind of branch out to whatever Ways we can do that. We'll have to be creative. We'll be back tomorrow. I won't be here, but uh, Darius and Mike will be back to continue our, our free agency preview week. But until then, you've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tips to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic got it. Magic fires. It's good. They win. Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's, There's the move. Two. Missing. It's over. And shot clock out of five. Bryant. Yes. With a little talk to Alvin Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good. Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers. James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.